doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify the day, glorify God on the day He visits us. So I want to just, uh, this is going to be expanded upon in verse, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, our text, but just to highlight a few things that we're going to see. We're going to see the abstain from sinful desires in, in verse, chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to see that come up in our text. We're going to, to see the live good lives uh, so that um, they may see your good deeds. Uh, also, it's if they accuse you of wrongdoing. The idea of suffering and accusation and people being opposed to you is going to come up in our text. And lastly, the glorify God, the people may glorify God, that being the goal. And, and then he says, on the day he visits us, looking forward to the return of Christ. And we're going to see that come up in our passage. So in just verses 11 and 12, we've got about four or five different ideas that are all going to be fleshed out in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, so we see how chapter 2, verse 11 says, dear friends. Okay? It's like you're writing a letter, dear friends. And then it finishes in chapter 4, verse 11, with uh, amen. Right? So you've started with dear, you finish with amen. And so that's like your, the, the, this center, central section of the letter is a complete uh, section. So that's the big picture. I want to give you then some themes from our text. The example, the first one, is that the example of Christ. Uh, you know the bracelets, the whole thing, what would Jesus do um, that was bigger a few years ago. Um, and, and so it's that sort of idea that Christ is an example. And we talked about this, it, it, sorry if you weren't here, but several weeks ago, the idea that if we just live, if our goal is to live good lives, if we equate a Christian life with a moral life or an ethical life, uh, but we we sort of don't do that because we're motivated by Jesus, then all we're living is a good life, not a Christian life. What makes a Christian life a Christian life is not that it's good. It's that it's grounded in Christ. It's motivated by Christ, that it's following the teachings of Christ. Because there are all sorts of people that will define what good is. And we could you know, sit around a circle and we could throw out topics and say, what's good on this topic? And, and we, some of us would agree on, on some and disagree on others. But what makes a Christian life is that it's grounded in the person of Christ. So Christ demonstrates how Christians should live in hardship, and that's the first theme. And the second theme is that... Uh, Chapter 4 begins with the word therefore. And um, what immediately before that, at the end of chapter 3, it says, talking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And so we have this picture of Jesus on the throne, at the right hand of God. And as he sits on the throne, he has authority over angels, authorities, and powers, whatever they might be, whether they be spiritual, whether they be world empires, uh, Caesar, or other powers that are more local than that. Uh, they are all in submission to, to Jesus, ultimately. And so because of that, 
that's where we pick up in, in chapter 4. Um, Christ suffered, but now he sits at the right hand of God. The suffering isn't the end of the story. So they're the two themes. Christ is our example, but Christ's suffering was not the end of his story, and it won't be the end of our story. So what I want to do now is just uh, kind of skim through uh, these verses in chapter 4, and I'll be picking out bits and pieces and just commenting on them as we go, because I think it's, it's something that many of us can relate to as we go through here. Even if we don't relate into the idea of suffering specifically for our faith, uh, the idea of hardship in life is a, is a reality. You know, whether it's a difficult boss, troubled relationships within our families, um, it, it, it can be health concerns, there can be all kinds of things, right? I don't have to tell you uh, that make life difficult at times. So some of the instructions here will be more relevant to us than, than others. But even you say, oh, we're not suffering because of our faith, and this isn't a real applicable passage for us, but there are certainly people around the globe who are suffering or their faith, right? And so, uh, in a Bible that is collated for the benefit of the entire world, just because something isn't super pertinent to us right now, doesn't mean it doesn't have a purpose right now. Because there are people that are saying, at this moment, that haven't been able to gather because of physical violence. People that are where Christian cultures, where Christianity is a minority. Uh, where they're not invited to hang out with the cool kids in the, in the community because they're, they're Christians. So the, the situation found and described here in, in Peter, First Peter, is one that even if we don't relate to, we should remember that there are people at this moment who relate to it uh, almost exactly. So we begin in chapter 4, verse 1. And... Um, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, right? He's the example. He's the example. It begins with the way that we think, right? It begins with, I believe, our expectations. Uh, it, it is so tempting to want to tell people that you become a Christian, you become a follower of Jesus, and life will be easy for you. And, and I believe life will be better for you. I wouldn't do what I do Every, every week, if I wasn't convinced that, that following Jesus makes life better for us. But, but don't confuse better with easier. And so I think that's the, the very beginning, because Christ suffered in his body when he was a human. He suffered physically. He says, therefore, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because what got Jesus through it wasn't that he was Superman and impervious to pain. What got him through it was... He was committed to see it through to the end. And then it says, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. I said this is a difficult verse, and I'll just tell you, here's how I see this. I believe that anyone who suffers, that anyone in his audience that is suffering, the reason they're suffering is because they're Christians. They're sticking with it. Okay, if they, if they want the suffering to stop, all they need to do is go back down to the temple and hang out with the, whatever the worshippers of the local deity are. That's all they need to do is go down there, stay away from church on Sunday, and they'll be welcomed back into that community. 
But he says, if you're, if you're suffering, it's because you're committed, it's because you're persevering in your faith. And, and if that's your commitment, if you're committed to following Jesus, and you're receiving suffering, that suffering is a reminder, that hardship is a reminder that you have committed to live life in a particular way. And that particular way is to live a life without sin. It says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. That's our commitment. In chapter 1, Peter talked about, be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. Quoting Leviticus. And and so as a result, in verse 2, he says, these people, if you're suffering, do not live the rest of their earthly, uh, rest of their earthly lives for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. This is the change that takes place. Now, if, if somebody is so committed to following Jesus that they'll suffer, they've said, enough of the sin, I'm going to put my natural, my human priorities and desires and appetites behind me, I'm going to push on living for God. That what He wants for my life. What he wants for the world has become my priority. And, and he continues down in, in verse 3 um, saying, look, you've had enough time in the past doing what pagans do. Like, there is no real enough time. <laughs> like, any amount of time is too much time. But, but Peter says, you've had enough of that. And this is where we get the idea that he's writing to a, a pagan audience, a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. Because a Jewish audience was by and large, ethically, morally, even theologically, Christian. The Christians at this time, their their written scripture was the Old Testament. And the Jews' written scripture was the Old Testament that we have. And so they were, in many ways, the same for the whole story as to who God was, how God wants us to live, how to interact with... The, there were debates among the Jews, how to interact with the Romans and the governing authorities. There was a lot of similarity between the Jews and the Christians. The difference was when it came to the person of Christ. And who is Jesus? And where is our hope? And what is the Messiah? And are we still looking for a Messiah? No, we have a Messiah. And that's where the distinction was between the two. But if you've been raised as a Jew, and then you say, okay, I can accept that Jesus is my Messiah... Now let me just keep living life, okay, under this new reign in this new kingdom, but there's no dramatic change because Israel has been the kingdom of God for thousands of years and now I'm in the kingdom of God still. I just recognize that Christ is the king of that kingdom. No big change. But for those who've been Gentiles, there's been a dramatic life change. And, and, the, and, and Peter, we see Paul, we see other Jewish writers, they have this list of things that Gentiles do. It doesn't mean every Gentile did all of these things, but it it just sort of characterizes the evil of the Romans, of pagan religion. And he talks there about living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. Um, And so there are some of those items that show up in different lists in different passages of Scripture. But we get the sense that That's just a broad characterization of the Gentiles. But your life has changed. He's very clear about that. You used to live one way. Now you live this way. And and so for those of us that have not been raised inside the church in a Christian environment, Christian family, then you can probably relate to, yeah, I had to make changes. 
As much as we would like life to continue, we would like to keep all our friends, we'd like to go to the same places, we don't want people to view us differently. You know, we want to just keep going the way things always have been. I just go to church on Sunday. You know, there's no big change here. Well, Peter's saying, no, remember, guys, the reason you're suffering is because there's been a big change. Because you used to hang out with them. You used to do that stuff. You used to live in that particular way. Your morals, your ethics, your behavior was different, and now you're following Jesus, which requires a change. And so I think sometimes we we need to, there is no rule that says everyone has the same dramatic change. But there is a difference for all of us between the way God's people live and the way people that aren't following Jesus and so um, I, I think that that point is made clear here. And we, we shouldn't be surprised then when even today we lose touch with people that we used to be close to because we're Christian. And, and we, we need to, to mentally set our expectation that we're going to be different. That there may be space between us. That that co-worker that I'm really good friends with may never really accept me completely the way she accepts someone else. Because my faith is different and it can create a distance between us. And so, becoming a Christian requires repentance. It requires not just a change of mind, but a change of action, a change of life. And I think Peter here uh, then uh, rounds out this section by, by saying, look, those people who are making life difficult for you, those people who are putting distance uh, between them and you, uh, and, and maybe even more than just a distance, it can be, could be more proactive, the trouble that they're causing. In verse 6, he says, this is the, uh, the reason he, the gospel is preached to those who are now dead, so they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Again, uh, that's the, I should just read verse 5. That doesn't have all the complications. Um, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so we're reminded then, after talking about the difficulties, talking about the changes you've made, talking about how we may not be accepted by everyone, not, may not be universally loved the way we would like to be because we're Christians. Right? If you're just like a mean person, then you shouldn't be universally loved by everyone. You know, like... But, but if it's because you're a Christian, he says, this, his reminder is that's life. Life is difficult, but there's a judgment. And we go back to that picture of Jesus is on the throne, is at the right hand of God. And there's implications of that, that, that yes, life may not be as easy as we would like it to be, but God at the end of time is the judge. Um, and that's a, that's a reality, that people are responsible, accountable for their actions, for their rejection of God. And so that should give us comfort uh, to the extent that there will be justice. Right? It seems as though the, the Christians, the good guys, are the ones who are suffering. And God says, well, you may be, but there will be justice. That's because God is the judge. So we spend these first six verses here really looking about how does this church relate to its community, relate to those round about. 
And, and then verses 7 through 11 uh, begin with the phrase, the end of all things is near. So again, we have the sense that, that we don't, life is not going to go on forever the way that it is now. And, and we could again have a long conversation about exactly what Peter meant when he wrote that. But I will say that there's a long tradition in Jewish uh, prophetic history. Uh, you can go back to Isaiah, you can go back to others in the Old Testament, where they talk about the day of the Lord. And they're always looking for the day of the Lord to come to make things right, to restore the world to the way it's supposed to be. And they're like, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. I mean, that is this hope. Now, it never comes. Right? At the time of writing, when the next prophet says it, it hasn't come after, since the last one said it. So it's not that there's this tradition of failed prophecy, but it's this tradition of living in expectation of God making things right, of God coming to restore things to the way they should be. And, and that's what Peter, I believe, is like feeding into that tradition here. He says, the end of all things is near. Don't live as though life is going to go on forever because that'll make you complacent. If you think, oh, look, God's not going to come and make things right for another thousand years. Yeah. It's like, oh, what's the, what's the rush? But if we think that, that Jesus could return tomorrow, then maybe we've got some things to do. Maybe, maybe Jesus has some stuff for us to... To, to put right in our lives. Maybe there's some things, some people he wants us to talk to. Maybe there's some things in our community that we can improve, that we can influence and have an impact for others. If we think, oh, tomorrow or next week or the, in a year's time, Christ will return. Live our lives with this idea that God is coming back. Don't just live thinking everything will go on forever. And, and if we live that way, he says, here's what I want you to do. There's four things. The first one is stay focused. Be alert and of sober mind. It's got nothing there to do with alcohol. But what it's, I know we hear sober and we think drugs and alcohol in our culture. But it's not about alcohol. It's not saying, oh, Christ is coming, don't drink. Right? Um, he's saying, Christ is coming, focus on that. I wonder if Peter, as he's writing this, doesn't have like a flashback to the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think it's his main point here, but I wonder if he doesn't flash back to think, yeah, remember just at the biggest moment of Jesus' life, how I lived? And, and he's saying, hey, Christ might be coming, the biggest moment of your life. Stay focused. Don't fall asleep. Right? And pray. And pray. Talk to God. Have a relationship with God. Be close to God. Invest in that. That's the first thing he says. And so... Stay focused and pray. The second one is love each other deeply. And, and he's, in verse 8 he says, above all, love each other deeply. That may sound familiar if you were here when we began this series. Uh, in chapter 1 and verse 22, we read there, he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And he comes here and he says, Okay, at the end of this meaty section, above all. Right, that's significant. We've talked about holiness. We've talked about judgment. We've talked about accountability for your actions. But he says, above all of that, love one another deeply. And I think the deeply says that this isn't always easy. Right? You have to invest into it. You have to, have to be committed to loving one another. 
Because sometimes, if we look in the mirror and we're really honest for a moment, we're not always easy to love, are we? And, and, and so, hey, y'all, you need to be loving on me. <clears throat> I know, that was a terrible accent. But um, it's like we put that expectation out there. And it's not always easy. And we know that because it's not always easy for us to love other people. <laughs> In fact, usually we just love the people that it's easy. Right? we got the people around us. We love, he says, love one another deeply. And then he says, because love covers a multitude of sins. I think oftentimes we, we read this or relate this to, to marriage. Right? It fits. Doesn't it fit in a marriage? You've got to forgive the other person. Yeah. The, the love, commitment is what's going to get you through those times, those offenses, those moments where things you don't see eye to eye on things. Um, in, in fact, if we would go back to 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that's read at so many weddings, it, it says there, love doesn't Keep track of wrongs. And so, both of this idea of what love is, that it involves forgiveness because it covers sin. It's interesting, even in Psalm 130 that we read this morning, the psalmist there says, thank you, God, that you don't keep a record of my sins. (laughs) Right? Because I couldn't keep up with that. That would be overwhelming. Uh, So, love each other deeply. But they're not, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Peter Chapter 4, they're not written to married couples, although married couples may be in the audience. They're written to congregations. He's saying in your church, love one another deeply because that will cover a multitude of sins. We have people, and by sins, I I think it's not just saying, oh, he broke God's law. I think it's talking there too about offenses. That, That there are people that think, oh, we've worn masks too long. We haven't worn masks long enough. We haven't sung. We should have. You know, like, we've offended a lot of people over the last 18 months. We know that because we can't please everyone. And we ask for you to forgive. We ask for your love towards the elders to get us towards one another to to overcome those offenses, to get us through that because that's what it's going to take. When the world outside is already giving us a hard time, don't come to church and start grumbling and complaining about the other person. I went to shake their hand and they turned away. Oh, they must be so mean. They must really hate me. Like, I mean, they were going to sneeze, but you didn't see it. You know, and I mean, it's so easy to take offense. He says, no, love one another deeply. And in that way, you'll cover those offenses that oftentimes don't amount to anything. But if you don't, if you come to church because it's the right thing to do, if you come to church because it's what you're supposed to do, if, you're just, if church for you is just something you come to, not something you are part of and belong to, if church is an event for you, then you're not loving one another deeply and you're going to take offense. And it's going to be hard. You're not going to benefit from it. So the thing above all is to love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay. And, and here I've, I've talked often, I, I love the topic of hospitality, I think it's so important in the Bible in the first century. And, and, and it's not just, I've told you, it's not just having people over to your house for a meal. It's, it's making space in your life for other people. Do you have space in your life for other people? 
It's so easy to say, I've got space in my life for six people. They just happen to be my cousins, huh? my brothers, my sisters, my family, whoever they are, my best friends from high school. Like, that's who I've got space for. And he's saying, no, practice hospitality. Look around the room. We don't even have 100 people in the room anymore. We're making it easy for you. And, and it says, like, practice hospitality. You can't love one another deeply if you don't have space in your life for other people. Make space for each other. Right now, that may not even include eating or drinking coffee or going places together, just out of safety. It may be that you make a phone call, send a card, pray for them, work through the pray list, prayer list every week. That would be a way of making space for other people in your lives. And, and then the, the last one here is use gifts to serve one another. Use gifts to serve one another. Peter recognizes that the church has been given, individuals in the church have been given different gifts. He says, use them. It's great that you can use your gifts to make a career. It's great that you can use your gifts outside the church, within your family. That, uh, you know, he says, find ways to use them serving each other in the church. It's a demonstration of love. Hospitality and the serving, using gifts to serve, are both like uh, subpoints to love one another. What it looks like. Serve one another. And so, it, it's interesting to me that, uh, sort of referencing 1 Corinthians 12, that uh, 12 is gifts, 13 is love, 14 is gifts, right? And Peter, in his list, the four things that are going to keep the church strong includes love and, and gifts. Peter also, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, kind of talks about hospitality when he says the, the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating is not the Lord's Supper, because some of you are very hospitable to people of, who can contribute to your fancy meal and you're inhospitable to those that don't have any food. And you're, and you're eating separately. You're based on what food you can bring. Uh, so it seems like if you... There's some parallel of topics and themes and ideas there. There's consistency. Would you believe it throughout Scripture? And then we get to the end of this and uh, the, the, Benedi- the doxology at the end. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, bringing everything back to God. This is not about our own skills and abilities. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To God be the glory, right? To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if you noticed, but in those four, uh, what do I call them? Four ways of living within the church. Now, the first one is stay focused and pray, but the, the next three points are all about one another. And I just want to say this, because I said at the start that last week was difficult as we talked about a difficult passage, as we talked about slaves and masters. But imagine that they're in that room together, in that church together. And, and so you go, oh, well, in chapter, you know, over there in chapter two, he's like putting um, layers, putting levels in, in society and uh, separating people and distinguishing them and um, you know that, but by the time you get down to the end of chapter four here, to those same people, if they're Christians, right? If they're there together, if they're Christians, he's saying, love one another, be hospitable to one another. How does that play out? Think about it in a church that has masters and slaves in there together. Is the slave hospitable to the master? Does the master have to accept that hospitality? the master have to be hospitable to the slave like i and, and so there's this subversive one anotherness throughout this passage throughout scripture that i think says within the kingdom of god there's a real distinction to be made 
that changes relationships, changes human structures. And, uh, and, and so just to be aware of that, that we can't, that this is all part of the same thought process, not just separate topics. And so to, to wrap this up, there's a lot of sort of individual instructions through here, but there's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus. Not everyone will love the lifestyle and value changes that we make. But Peter continually reminds us, Jesus has gone ahead of us. He's gone through suffering to sit at the right hand of God. He's victorious over that suffering. And in the meantime, as we wait for Christ's return to make all things right, be committed to prayer, to loving each other, to spending time with each other, and to serving each other. And so maybe this week, you want to just look at those four things and say, what can I, what's an area that maybe as we come back out of isolation, as we start thinking more about the one another's in our church, in our lives, what's something that I can emphasize in the coming weeks? And in so doing, to, to demonstrate to the world what true community is, what true family is, and to give honor and glory to God, because we'll get through tough times together with Christ on the throne. We're going to be lit a song before we go into the Lord's Supper. As we prepare our hearts and minds for the Lord's Supper, we will sing as the deer. We will sing two verses, with the second verse starting with, I want you more than gold and silver. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You strength, my shield, to you alone and my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you. I want you more than gold or silver only. You can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. You strength my shield to you alone may my spirit
In the Hebrew letter, these words are written. Although he was a son, 